This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everyone. I'm Leanna Tan, bringing you some wise words from your coach and guide on the side, Matt Townsend. We've got a great program for you today. We are going to start out with one of Matt's famous coaching corners and then go to an interview with Dr. Kenneth McLeod all about why people tend to regain weight after they diet. And then we'll finish up with some parenting tidbits from Matt and Julie Nelson. So let's get kicked off with some advice about bullying from Matt. So one of the things that I I really like to draw a distinction on when I work with companies and Stephen Covey taught this uh, very well, is there's a certain time that we need to compete and there's a certain time that we need to cooperate. And competition works incredibly well, but you'll notice that a lot of, and for a lot of people, some of this aggressiveness and aggression that we see in our business and our workplace might be coming from the fact that you've set up systems that are competitive instead of cooperative. So if I work in a company and I'm a salesperson and we have a list uh, you know, where we compete every week to be the number one salesperson, then what? it's great because you'll get the benefits of competition, right? So I'll work hard. I'll keep trying to you know, increase my abilities and my skills. That's, that's actually pretty smart, right? Because I want all my sales guys kind of competing against each other, we think. The downside to that competition, however, is that when I figure out the number one easiest way to get leads and close deals, and it's my competitive advantage, I'm not telling anybody about it, right? I'm not going to tell you because it's mine. And so I keep some of the great secrets that could lift my entire team up, and I keep the secret because you've fostered as the sales manager a competitive environment. So we sometimes we're afraid that if we're too cooperative, we we, you know, we'll be able to brainstorm better, we'll be able to share best practices if we're cooperating. So the dilemma becomes how do I create an environment where I balance my competition of my people and my cooperation with my people to create this synergy? Like think about it in learning is the best way to learn to create a competitive environment. So if we're grading on the curve and I can only give so many A's, I guess that's the best way to create learning? I doubt it. Yet we're all at school competing for grades. We're all at work competing. And there are certain times I'm not questioning that we should compete. If I need to make a team, I want my team competing against each other to make the, to make the to decide who's going to be first string, right, on the team. So, for a certain percentage of my camp with my team, I'm going to have them compete for their roles and their positions. But there comes a point where I need to then make them the team. And once I decide to make them the team, if competition every single day for your role or your position is there, then I'm going to actually impact our ability to cooperate together. I, at some point, need not individual goals per se. I need group goals, collective goals. So think about your organization. And if you're an organizational leader, even think about your family. 
a lot of parents try to motivate their kids by competing. I used to do it all the time. First one to bed gets a sucker, (laughs) and my kids would beat each other up to get to bed. Okay, you win the sucker. But they're crying and they're hyperventilating. (laughs) She hit me. Okay, well, we got them to bed, but they hate each other. There's a certain time to compete and a certain time to cooperate, and I'm afraid that many times the bullies unintentionally don't distinguish between the two. So think about that in your life and in your world. Are you an effective manager of when to cooperate and when to compete? And a lot of times I think the bullies are people that just think competition's the number one rule. And it's just not the case. It's not the case. And whichever rule you choose, if you go with competition or cooperation, there's a consequence. There's a there's a payback. And um, you got to be careful of it, right? So think about it in your world. And don't just sit there and think everybody else is the bully. Is there any chance that people at your workplace consider you to be a bully? Just because of the jokes you make, what you say, are you a bully? Anyway, take it in. Figure it out. Thanks for that, Matt. I really liked what he said there about considering when it's best to cooperate versus when it's best to compete. Because, you know, whether it's in your home or your workplace or wherever you are, it's not always about competing like a lot of people think. Okay, well, now I've got a great interview for you with Matt and Dr. Kenneth McLeod. And I found this interview to be very shocking because I'm always cold. And I'm not just talking about in my office, I mean everywhere. I kid you not, I wear my husband's industrial grade lumberyard coat and a beanie when I'm cooking with the oven wide open at 425 degrees in my own apartment. And the other day, I was laying on the couch with two blankets bundling me and a sweater and a heating pillow on a hot summer night. Um, But apparently, according to Dr. Kenneth McLeod, if I'm just sitting there and my hands and feet get cold, that means that I could potentially be gaining weight. We'll have that interview with Dr. Kenneth McLeod for you to listen for yourself right after this break. A new year is just around the corner, my friends, and uh, a common New Year's resolution is to work off those extra pounds that you gain during Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners. The strategy seems simple, right? Just exercise to burn more calories and reduce your caloric intake. Bada boom, bada bing. The next thing you know, you're just losing weight. It's just sloughing off of you, right? Many studies, though, now show that the simple strategy doesn't work well for the majority of people. Here with us today to talk about it is Dr. Kenneth McLeod, Director of the Clinical Science and Engineering Research Laboratory at Binghamton University. Dr. Kenneth McLeod, thanks for being with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for the invite. So you bet. This is this was really interesting. And then I love your credentials because you received a PhD in electrical engineering from MIT, but now you're solving the problems of why we can't why we gain our weight back after we lose it how how did you get into the weight loss world ken <laughs> yeah it it's strange the tortuous path that careers can take um i i spent many years at uh, the stony brook medical university studying osteoporosis and we were trying to understand the etiology 
of uh, osteoporosis, which is not a disease per se. It's what we call a condition or a functional disorder. Um, it's defined by the fact you, your your bone tissue is just fine. It looks normal, except you don't have enough of it. Um, and so it's a classic adaptation issue. And we were working on trying to figure out how um, this adaptation process works, which got us looking at fluid flow in the lower part of the body because osteoporosis is really something that we think about in, in the hips and, and lower down in the body. Um, and that got me looking at um, how fluid pools into the lower limbs and how that unpooling should occur, and, and which led me to um, learning about the, the secondary hearts, the soleus muscles um, down in the calf of the legs. Um, and then that, that led me into a long series of studies related to what happens when your soleus muscles, your secondary hearts, fail. Okay, talk um, about the secondary heart. You keep using the term. We have, we have two pumping systems I'm learning from you. One is the heart, but then in this, is it the soleus muscles in the calves? You're calling it the secondary heart. It's another pumping muscle. It is. It, it's a specialized muscle, very much like the heart is a specialized muscle. Uh, it has these venous sinuses um, in the interior. And so your soleus muscles, as we sit or stand, slowly fill with uh, both blood, venous blood, as well as what we call interstitial fluid, or what you might think of as lymphatic fluid. Um, and then every couple of minutes, that muscle will slowly contract and push all of that back up to the heart. Um, this is something we need because humans are very tall animals. We don't think of ourselves as very large animals, but um, the larger animals all tend to be quadrupeds or on all fours. And so our heart is way up high in our chest. Um, we have very soft skin. Gravity grabs all the fluid in our body and just pulls it all down. Um, and if we didn't have a, a specialized muscle to pump all that fluid back to the heart, um, we would also have to be a quadruped or even worse, um, you know, lay on the ground. Yeah. So talk about what this has to do with weight loss. I lose weight, and I one of the studies that you were involved in, which fascinates me, involved four contestants from the world's biggest loser reality show and that you that you tracked. But these four contestants, 30 weeks later, they on average lost 125 pounds, but 30 weeks later they had gained back most of their weight, and it has something to do with these the secondary heart. Well, it's, it's, it really isn't well understood why people can't um, lose weight, uh, when they lose weight, why they can't retain that lost weight. Um, by the way, I was involved in that study. That study was done at the National Institutes of Health, mm. um, and they tracked 14 people over six years. There you go, yeah. Um, but, the, um, but there's this phenomenon called metabolic adaptation, and when you lose weight, your resting metabolic rate drops. And it's not well understood why that occurs, but it's, it's hugely important because most of our energy burn over the course of the day is just due to resting metabolism, um, just keeping our organs alive. Um, there's no question we move around a little bit, we exercise a little bit, but for most of us, probably 80% of the calories we burn every day are just burned while we're doing what you and I are doing right now, just sitting at our desks. Um, and so small changes in your rest and metabolic rate can have just an enormous influence on whether you gain or lose weight. So what happens after you lose weight is that your resting metabolic rate drops. In the study you're referring to, it dropped almost 30% in those contestants. 
And so that would be the equivalent of saying eating 30% more food every day. Mm. Um, that's really what happens to those individuals. So they lose their, their resting metabolic rate goes down, and then, um, but it doesn't stay down once they've lost the weight. It does stay down. Oh, it does stay lost. down. It does stay down. And that's the issue then because now you're metabolizing um, at a much lower rate. And so you're burning many fewer calories. So if you just try to eat normally, you're going to gain weight. Mm. Um, and that's the issue is wh- what – that's the issue we're addressing. Um, and it's not that we work specifically in the field of, of obesity research. Um, we work in the world of, of, of secondary heart physiology. Uh, and But that is tied directly into this whole question of resting metabolic activity. So that's the, the link there between our research and the research – on uh, on obesity and how weight loss leads to metabolic adaptation. So that's the connection. Okay. So if the I guess the idea is if we it's really all about the resting metabolic rate and you want to see if you can't keep that consistently up so you're burning calories while you're sitting there except when people lose a lot of weight that tends to drop. That's exactly right. And you and you're saying there's there you are finding some science about the secondary heart and the soleus muscles that might be contributing to some of that. Exactly right. What we find is that when we're resting, we're sitting, for example, or even standing quietly, um, people can pull fluid at at very different rates, and in a half an hour. Some people will pull 30 to 50% of the fluid in their body into their legs. Well, if all this fluid is in your body, it is not getting back to your heart. And your heart can only pump out what comes back to it. The venous return to the heart critically determines your cardiac output. And your cardiac output determines your rest of metabolic rate. So if a third of the blood in your body goes into your feet, that means your cardiac output is going to drop by a third. And that means your rest of metabolic rate is going to drop by a third. So we're very interested in what can we do to ensure that your venous return is sustained while we're just sitting, standing around, um, and and in maintaining cardiac output, we can maintain resting metabolic rate. So that's that's the linkage there. Ensure that you have good venous return, that's going to ensure cardiac output, and that's going to ensure rest of metabolic rate, and that's going to ensure a high caloric burn. That's going to ensure that you can maintain your weight. Is this because in the study that was done by the National Institute of Health, it was um, th- these were people that lost 125 pounds. And I know in the research, one of the things they're finding that is we have these people then have more skin. They have more uh, places, I guess, where the fluids could accumulate. And so I guess when you lose weight, you've got more mass and the mass takes time to come back or to 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 be eliminated. So do you need surgery in order to eliminate all the excess skin and all of this extra space to hold the fluids? Do you have to tighten up the whole body in order to get the the systems pumping, you know, more efficiently? Well, there is evidence to suggest that that would work. Absolutely. Um it's it's more commonly done um at, you know, following bariatric surgery where people have um, lost in that same, you know, one or 200 pounds um, due to um, 
the, uh, the response to the bariatric surgery. And a subset of those will opt, because they now have all this excess skin, they will opt to go through plastic surgery to have that skin removed. And when they do have that skin removed, um, the probability of them regaining weight is dramatically reduced, significantly reduced. So your suggestion is absolutely right. If you get rid of that excess skin, you remove that, that potential volume for pooling fluid, um, then it's, on, it's less likely you're going to pull fluid, and therefore you're going to be able to maintain your cardiac output and your rest of metabolic rate. So that, that is a good, it's not necessarily a practical suggestion mm. for most people, um, but it is used by a subset of people who have undergone substantial weight loss. Is is this are these the same facts? Is it is the the same? I guess we have the same resting metabolic rate issues with somebody that's maybe just lost twenty pounds. Um, yes, uh, and we have that metabolic rate issue with people who haven't necessarily lost weight; they're gaining weight um, again because as they um, sit at work, they're pulling fluid, their cardiac output drops. Um, one of the first things you notice when your cardiac output is dropping and your rest of metabolic rate drops, is your cold. Um, mm. You're in a nice room. I don't know what, you know, our offices here at the university are kept at 70 degrees, which is reasonably pleasant. Um, but in fact, a, a remarkable number of individuals here at the university are cold all the time at work. And you look under their desk and they have an under-desk space heater. So if you're cold at work, that's a pretty good indicator that you're pulling fluid and your um, cardiac output's dropping and therefore your rest of metabolic rate is dropping. And so you're probably going to be gaining weight. And that, that happens to the majority of us over our, over our careers. Um, you know, the people are trying to lose weight then. Um, it's a kind of a double whammy because the system is trying to force you to gain weight. You're actually trying to, you know, not only just not gain weight but lose weight. Um, so it's doubly hard. And then once you lose the weight and you go through this metabolic adaptation, um, keeping that weight off becomes extremely difficult. Hmm. So is, is this why we hear more and more uh, people talking about the fact that you need to stand up more, that you need to be moving more? We talk about standing desks now and, uh, you know, st- sitting is the new – is the old smoking. I don't know if you've heard all of these terms. Is it, is it the need to stand? We need to be standing more? It's good to get up and move. Um, standing quietly is actually a bit harder on you than sitting um, in that you're taller. I mean, you've, you've increased your height by the length of your femur. Right. Um, and so that means the gravitational forces um, on the column of fluid in your body is greater, um, and you're going to pull a little more quickly. But if you're moving around, if you get up, you know, I know the NIH encourages you to get up and move every half hour or something like that now. Um, and so that, that's one approach. That's obviously a good approach. Exercise is wonderful, aerobic capacity. Um, you know, how much bosses like um, their employees getting up and, you know, wandering for 10 minutes every half hour, um, you know, would have a, probably a pretty significant impact on um, productivity. And so that's why we have been looking at, you know, alternative approaches to um, the standing up or walking around or um, – and and so we've been figuring how can we how can we retrain the soleus muscles because what happens after years and years of sitting is your soleus muscle I'll put this in the context I guess of holiday dinners um, we you think of your turkey um, there's dark meat and white meat mm-hmm. and that's red muscle and white muscle and your soleus muscle is, should be mostly red muscle red muscle fiber um, we call it type two A muscle fiber um, and that what happens over time is that 
red muscle fiber converts into more of a white muscle fiber, and that's not good. Um, and because your soleus muscle has to sustain these contractions throughout the day. So what we want to do is convert these white muscle fibers back to being red muscle fibers. Um, and that requires a different type of exercise than your typical exercise if you were training up like your biceps or your triceps or your quadriceps. Um, you know, think of the soleus, it's what we call a deep postural muscle. So you could think of it um, like your neck muscles. You know, so how do you train up your neck muscles? You know, and the gist of it is you lift up your head in the morning and you hold your head up for 16 hours and then you rest it at night. Right. That's, you know, it's low-level activity, but it's sustained activity. And that's what deep postural muscles need. They need that kind of sustained um, uh, contraction, stimulation. Um, so what would be, what's really good for your soleus muscles is um, squatting, for example. Um, when you squat, your soleus muscle is what you're using to maintain your balance, to keep you from tipping over. Hmm. Um, sta standing on your toes is, is quite excellent. Um, we often find that women who regularly wear a very high heel um, have excellent soleus muscles. I don't <laughs> recommend necessarily yeah. high heels very hard on your toes and your feet, but they have amazing soleus muscles. Um, so those are the kinds of things where we're talking hours a day of stimulation, um, and so that's what you have to somehow incorporate into your lifestyle. And that's not easy no. for most people. And it's interesting, and it's not even – but to, to think of this as what's, you know, impacting our, um, our, our resting metabolic rate, our RMR, is – I mean, it's it's amazing, and yet we we hear about our metabolism, and you got to watch it and pay attention to it. But to know that you, those little exercises could be making a big difference, uh, it's important. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Kenneth McLeod about his research um, on why so many people regain their weight after dieting. It uh, it might be we need to introduce the secondary heart, the one that's in your legs that you didn't even know you were using to keep your resting metabolic rate up. I will continue the discussion when we come back. Stick with us, folks. Helping you live longer, love stronger. This is The Matt Townsend Show. If I wear high heels, I can metabolize better? Well, I'd love to hear more about that. But first, let's interrupt with a quick coaching corner on being emotional creatures from Matt. Some of us have just never learned how to manage these emotions. We don't know how to do it. And then, you know, we naturally just spank. We might spank our kids. But then when you bring on a national expert who's talking about children and violence... And the research shows that by spanking your children, you create children that are more aggressive and, and spank and or hurt other or hit other people. So by spanking your children, you're more likely to create people that hit people. Well, yeah, but my daddy spanked me and look how I turned out. Well, great. Fantastic. But is, what's interesting is we we are getting better as as a society in managing our emotions like uh, he was, Dr. Finkler was just telling us, you're, we're getting healthier. There's less abuse of children, except 10% of children annually are still abused. They are harmed with a bruise or a cut or some 
need I mean they don't always need to go to the hospital but there is a mark from what how parents or others are dealing with them and bullying and things like that so one of the things I just wanted to work on a little bit in this coach's corner is give you some other tools for things we can do there's a lot of other things we could be doing to um help uh to, to figure out how to help people manage some of this emotion. Um, one of the things I would just suggest right out front is recognize it. We've got to learn to recognize people's emotions. When they have an emotion, that emotion is telling us something's going on inside. Now, if a bully's coming up to, to beat you up, you know, this might not help. But when you have the conversation and you see your child is quiet or maybe a little more reserved, more afraid to go to school. Notice the emotions that they're that they're sharing and exp- and recognize it. Don't react to the emotion. Don't freak out because your child's freaking out. If all of a sudden you keep reacting to your child's emotion, guess what? You are your child. So we don't need any more people reacting to each other's emotions. Let's just start recognizing it. And to recognize it, you could hold it out and say. Okay, son, you seem angry. What's going on? Well, you, you tell me. I can just point out the emotion you see. If you see sad, say that. Son, you seem sad. If you see they're happy, point it out. Man, how many how many people would love to be happy and actually have somebody notice it? Hey, you seem happy. It's and then by the way, the minute you notice the emotion, guess what the person's going to probably do? They're going to want to explore the story behind the emotion. Oh, the funniest thing just happened. When you recognize someone's sad, you seem down, you seem bummed. What's up? Let them then explore their story. What if with our kids, instead of being angry at them because they're angry at at their brother, what if we recognize, I can see you're frustrated with your brother. What's going on? And then let them explore the story. The problem is I get hijacked by their emotion. I get messed up because they're mad, I go mad, and then all of a sudden, uh uh-oh, dad's mad. (laughs) And when dad's mad, it ain't going to be pretty. How do we get through this if we can't teach our kids to let the emotions be there and then from the emotion try to understand the story behind it? I call it getting real. We recognize the emotion. We explore the story behind it. Everybody has that has an emotion will have a story behind it. There's going to be a story. And if you can get the person to share their story, then that will get the emotion out by using words instead of anger and aggression. We recognize the emotion. You seem upset. What's going on? Explore the story. Let them tell their story. It doesn't matter if you don't like their story. You don't need to critique them or correct the child yet. You just need to explore the story. Inside of the story, I would attend to what the real issue is. There's a deeper need, and I call it the starved stuff, but everybody deep down wants to feel safety, trust, appreciation, respect, validation, encouragement, dedication. It's a starved need. If you basically get to the starved need, recognize the emotion, explore the story, and get down to the starved issue, the deeper issue. Because if you can go figure out if it's a safety issue, a trust issue, a respect, a validation, you're going to have some powerful tools. And then the L of get real is just to lift the conversation. Recognize what they're feeling and, and, then, and then use the word and and then explain what you need to tell them. I appreciate I can see that you really feel unsafe by your brother hitting you in the head with the with the golf ball. Um, and you can't throw golf balls back at him. And we'll take care of your brother. And I'm sorry you I'm sorry you were feeling that way. You can correct it. Don't don't get me wrong. You don't have to just let them walk all over each other. We can correct these things. 
But at some point, you got to have a better plan than just blowing up because they're blowing up. All right. I like that. It seems like it would take a very intelligent person to do what Matt is saying. And instead of reacting to emotions, recognizing what they actually are first. Sounds like the first step to world peace to me. All right. Well, I think I want to hear more about how those high heels are helping me lose weight. So let's dive back into that interview with Dr. Kenneth McLeod. Hey, um, and you're talking us through some interesting research about why people regain weight after dieting. And it really comes down to our resting metabolic rate. So when people are losing weight, um, their metabolism's high. It's good. They're burning uh, calories as they sit there. The, the weight is just sloughing off, I assume. But what you're finding is after people lose weight, then a lot of times the resting metabolic rate drops and um, they have pooling of, uh, of fluids and it makes it so they end up gaining weight back. Correct. Is that accurate? That's accurate. Okay. So, and you're saying we, and part of it is because of our soleus muscles in our legs, um, they have to push the fluid up it back to our heart, which is hard because as humans, we're pretty tall individuals um, relative to the other animals that are on quadrupeds, four legs. Um, but is it... So what? So I should pay attention to my metabolic rate and figure that out and, and pay attention to it. And then I really need to be doing whatever I can to decrease fluids that are pooling in me and increase my secondary heart's ability to push the fluids up through the heart so that my metabolic rate stays high. That's the gist of it, right. So if you have, um, you know, when some people lose weight, their metabolic rate, does not drop at all. In fact, in some people, it'll go up a little bit. Um, some people it will plummet. And so we see quite a variation in people's ability to um, maintain weight loss. But the, the trend is that when you lose weight, your metabolic rate drops, and most people really struggle to maintain lost weight. Um, and so that's really the, the question we're, we're addressing. What, what is different? What is special about that group? Um, and that is the group we find um, pool pretty extensively um, while they're resting, which is how most of us spend most of our lives. The average American sits 13 hours a day. I mean, 86%, I think it is, of Americans sit all day long at work. And then you add in your eating time, you add in your car travel time, and you add in leisure time, watching TV. Um, and it adds up to about 13 hours a day. So th- this is why we say you, you're metabolic activity is largely dominated by resting metabolic activity. Um, And so there are some simple signs that if you're a pooler or not, um, if you have varicose veins, you're a pooler. If you have swollen ankles and legs, you're a pooler. Um, If uh, uh, your hands and feet are cold when you're at work, you're a pooler. Um, So so those would be indications that you really do want to be concerned about your RMR and do what you can do to um, to try to improve the condition of your soleus muscles. Because and, – and you're saying there are things you can do. Like, I mean, I some, re, some fluid retention is – isn't it because of salt or sodium in the diet? Isn't it heart conditions as well? I mean, aren't there other reasons? But I guess those are also reasons why you would pool and reasons why you wouldn't be able to maintain the weight. Right. I mean, congestive heart failure, you know, if, you, if your heart is, cannot pump, um, 
then uh, then you will pool fluid. But heart failure is relatively rare. About 3% of Americans have heart failure. So the vast majority of people who are struggling to maintain their weight probably do not have heart failure. Um, and if your doc is concerned you have heart failure, they're going to do a cardiac workup. But, you know, what we have found is that when you go into the hospital, they do a cardiac workup, they say, well, your heart is just fine. You know, we just, we don't know why you're pooling all this fluid. Um, get compression stockings, you know, put your feet up, you know, on your desk at work, which may or may not work, depending on the work environment. Um, the uh, and, and often physicians are at a loss. And, and the gist of the reason is that cardiac workups are done when you're lying down, you know, when you're flat on your back. Right. When you're flat on your back, you don't need a soleus muscle. Um, your your heart can pump the fluid around just fine. It's when we're upright, when we're sitting quietly, we're standing quietly, that's when your soleus muscle kicks in. And so you really need to do a cardiac workup when you're upright. Um, so um, Is that's... It- it almost seems like it's because, you know, everyone that's losing weight is probably used to running or exercising. They're on their feet. They, they're on their feet. They go exert. They, um, but you're saying it's, it's the other 14 hours of the day that are really costing you your ability to keep the weight off. It very much is, yeah. It's dominated by that relatively sedentary time that our, um, our modern work life works um, work-home life um, forces us into in, in many ways. So, yes, that is the critical time when we're sitting. I mean, your sitting time is most of your day, mm-hmm. and that's what we're, we're interested in. So so there are a number of interventions. You know, as we, we talked about, a, you know, a great one um, is Tai Chi. Um, you know, Tai Chi is a type of exercise geared to training up your deep postural muscles. It's holding poses for extended periods of time. Um, it's all about balance, uh, those those kind of things. So Tai Chi is excellent. Um, many people don't care for it. It is obviously time-consuming. Anything you're doing to train up your postural muscles is going to be very time-consuming. That's interesting because, I mean, we do see more and more people liking yoga, um, and but and Tai Chi, I guess, would, would be an interesting form of, uh, of just muscle strengthening. But it's 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 usually not a major part of someone's diet, and yet it may be a major part of being able to keep the pounds off. That's interesting. Yes, very much so. But as we started out, you were at the very beginning of the conversation. You said this is very strange for an engineer to be working in this field, yeah, you know, physiology. And so, but I am an engineer, and of course, what engineers do is you know try not to judge people's lifestyles or whatever, but give them tools that they need to live the life they want to need and so live. And so, um, you know, so we have been working for the last decade or so trying to come up with a convenient way to help people maintain their, their soleus muscles while they do what they do. And that doing happens to be sitting. Um, so how can we keep the soleus muscles activated when we're not moving around? And that's been a major focus of our work here uh, in the lab at Binghamton. Very practical. What What are some other things? Tai Chi. Anything else we could be doing to to make sure we're we're working the soleus muscles? Okay, so we um, we talked about squatting, which is very good. Um, toe standing is quite excellent. Um, high heels, which can work, I guess. If you definitely for women, although if you've seen the show Kinky Boots, I guess it can work for some types of men as well. <laughs> Scary. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, in, in Tai Chi, um, but uh, you know that captures usually a small um, 
you know, small subset. And so, you know, this this is why we've we've developed technology here in the lab, which actually ended up um, being licensed by a spinoff, and and it's you know commercially available now. A a device that you can put under your desk, and it will it stimulates. There's a reflex arc that will cause the soleus muscle to contract, a postural reflex arc. And if you stimulate the front, what's called the frontal plantar surface, or the front of your sole of your foot, you can stimulate that at a specific frequency and amplitude, and you can get your soleus muscle to contract. And so the basic idea is you can sit at work, and you can be exercising your soleus while hmm. you sit and work, talk on the phone, work on your computer, read a book, watch television. Um, and so... That's probably at this point the easiest way we think to to train up your soleus. And it's it's um, literally stimulating electrically your the your that muscle. We can do it both ways, uh, electromagnetically or or mechanically. The device that's on the market, um, it it's called the Heart Partner for perhaps obvious reasons. Um, the Heart Partner is a mechanical device, so it mechanically stimulates what are called mechanoreceptors on the front of the foot. And that stimulates the reflex arc, um, and you can use it all day long. It's like a pacemaker that you would have for the cardiac muscle. It's a pacemaker for the soleus muscle. So what it does, it stimulates for roughly a minute, and then it pauses. It allows that muscle to refill with fluid, blood and interstitial fluid, um, for about two minutes, and then it's going to stimulate again. So it, the it, it's very much like a cardiac ma- pacemaker, but the dynamics are very different. It's, hmm. it, you're your soleus works almost in slow motion compared to your heart, which is contracting every one second or so. That's great, though. I mean, and again, it's it's something just to have the knowledge and to, to be able to pay attention to, to this new learning. Wow, so many things I didn't know. I walked into work today and saw my coworker doing squats in the studio, and now I know why. Well, to finish up our programming, I've got a little treat for you. You know, when I was a kid... I was always asking for art stuff for Christmas or my birthday or whenever I could get a present. And I loved making stories with my little sister. We would take old computer paper and write stories and then illustrate them with our Crayola set and bind them with some old yarn and give them to our parents for Christmas or Mother's Day or Father's Day or whatever. And when I was listening to this interview, I was thinking back on those memories and realizing how much art and crafting really did craft my childhood. So take a listen to this segment about the importance of art in children's lives right after this break. Just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down in a most delightful way. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Little Mary Poppins for you. A spoonful of parenting helps the medicine go down. Yeah, the parenting go down. Even in the most delightful way. Delightful. Go to the website, a spoonful of parenting.com, and you'll find Julie K. Nelson. She's one of our great contributors and is talking to us today about art, making sure you're incorporating art into your family's life, lives and, and your children mainly. Yeah. Um, so my, my, my culture growing up was um, music and arts, um, visual arts, and my mom made us all choose an instrument. Most of us played the piano. My younger brother, that's the tallest one. I mean, they're all over six foot. I mean, he's six like foot Michael five. Phelps. Yeah, he is. And so, you know, you'd think he has this. You know, he's got this six foot eight, six foot eight 
body for a basketball player. Right. He played collegiate. But, you know, he's over 50 now. He can't play basketball really no. a lot. He's got a career. But right. guess what he does all the time? Plays the piano. Does he really? Teaches his children how oh, to play the piano. See, so, I wish. so you can enjoy the arts till you die. Ah. You know, he can, he, can, he can have that as a hobby forever. But the basketball thing, you know, is kind of a, you know, he does it once in a while, but his knees are kind of bad. Mm. But so he, he learned the arts and appreciation for the arts. He's very young. And so no matter what your children end up doing for their careers or even, even athletes, you know, if they do something athletic, they can still have the love and the friendship with music for yeah. the rest of their lives. Oh, I, I think that's – I think it's important. You miss out on life. And plus, like I said, my brother was pretty handsome, pretty tall. And even though you know he played basketball, but it made ladies swoon oh, when, yeah. they, when he played the, the piano and the organ. So wow. just saying. So, okay, let, let's see. Keep a, a craft drawer. My mom did this really well also. She had a drawer. A craft where, drawer. Where you just had whatever you wanted in that drawer. And, and I just went on Sunday to uh, my husband's cousin's house. And they had a child-sized table, a rather large one, in their kitchen. I was really I was really impressed by this. Small chairs. They have kids that are like, you know, eight and six. Hmm. And all the crafts on top of that table. So have a designated place in the house where they can go to and just enjoy. Oh, how great. Just, the, you know, the, the paper, the crafts, the. Uh, you know, the scissors, and then just make whatever they want to yeah. keep adding to it. Another thing that's really great is to have like a, a what I call a trashable drawer or a trashable, you can have it in a, in a cardboard box where instead of throwing out your egg cartons, oh, put stuff in there, them, toilet in paper a... rolls, uh-huh. the, the, you know, the ones, you know, yeah. and, and you put them in there and then just let them build. You know things make a city on the table oh, with cool. with tape tape and all these things and and old cereal boxes. Mm-hmm. Let them create and so you know keep keep those for three D model building or you know big fridge boxes. We you know whenever, do you ever got yeah. your fridge and you put it in the backyard? Oh, yeah, they totally. turn into a house. You oh, know a car that was the greatest, the greatest thing tunnels. Ever. Yeah, and creativity. Yeah, we kept those refrigerator those boxes days. forever. Those oh, were yeah. the days. Do you remember? Yeah. Back when you, you know, back when they didn't care enough about the seat belt us. They didn't, they didn't ever protect us that way, but they let us play in a crate. <laughs> in our backyard, we kept it was we, the greatest those thing. refrigerator boxes and stuff. Yeah. We kept those in the backyard and turned them into all kinds Trucks of, and, you know, oh. rocket ships to the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, and traditions. Um, when you have certain traditions that go on, like birthdays and stuff, uh, make them creative. So in other words, instead of just buying the birthday card, make a tradition in your home that you make the birthday card. Um, my son's oh, really cool. good friend was is moving um, to Luxembourg. And so last night he said, Mom, do you have a, a goodbye a farewell card that I can make my friend? I said, why don't you or, – or, or give my friend. I said, why don't you make a card instead? He's hmm. like, make a card? I'm like, yeah, you know how you do – and I, so I gave him some ideas and he made the most creative oh, card. Cool. More meaningful and personal. All from his heart. All from his heart and took it to that friend's house and said, you know, goodbye and gave him this really personal. Did his friend say, what, you can't afford a card? <laughs> no, he loved punk? it. He loved it. He I loved like it. That. That's and he's going to keep it forever. No store bought. We make our cards. Um, teach him how to write poetry. Mm. Even fun, silly little poems, and Limericks. even if you even if you buy the card, <laughs> yeah, put the personalized poem in it. I like that, you know. And then write use it to your them brain is what you're for saying for the birthday g- greeting, rather yeah. than what Hallmark comes up with. Yeah. Um, we do in our family. One of our traditions is we I keep um, a long um, 
uh, piece of uh, I don't know what you call it, like butcher paper, almost that's rolled up on a roll kind uh-huh. of thing, and it goes forever. And um, we cut off big slices of that and turn it into banners. Oh yeah. And so we put it, you know, cut up a long piece of that and put it on our floor. I get the markers out, and then we write in big lockbox letters, you know, welcome home or you know, happy, yeah. you know, baby coming. You know, we we welcome things in our neighborhood and um, birthdays and any kind of celebration. We make banners and put it up on the people's that's houses cool. or at our house. Glad um, you're not in prison. <laughs> anything. Um, so welcome, baby. Anything. We make these banners, and it's very creative. And you should see them all on the floor. It doesn't yeah. matter how old you are. The little ones scribbling. The older ones decorating. the. So, yeah. Um, delivered handmade Christmas cards and Valentine cards to neighbors when they're, or when they're sick. And one other thing we let our kids do is decorate their rooms for the holidays. Oh, um, really? That's a very creative that's art great. thing. Give them a little tiny miniature Christmas tree and yeah. let them make their own decorations and whatever. You know, so like, Kids want to light up their room with all the Christmas lights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let, let them decorate the room up. Um, now, parents, some of you are saying, I don't want to do this because this makes my house messy. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work and it makes it messy. Yeah. I do realize that. But it activates your, the brain um, and makes your kids, what do you want in life? Think of the big picture. Right now, yeah, a little mess. I also say, you know what? If you make the mess, you help clean up the mess. Right. Why not say, well, it's not up to you, parent, to clean it up, but the, the child sure. helps sure. with. And I like to contain the mess as well. So, so we're, we're going to do like an art project. I'll spread out um, an old um, plastic tablecloth. Yeah. And it goes on that. Yeah. And then when we clean up, we just fold up the tablecloth, take outside and hose it down so that it's contained. Right. You know? It seems like a lot of times we think, yeah, I used to do pumpkins with my kids when they were younger, but I found it's probably, it's more fun to do it when they're older because they really can do a lot more on their own. And then you create a pretty fun vibe of a little competition with the boys Mm -hmm. and creativity comes yeah. out. Yeah, and maybe a slice finger or so. Yeah, you know? sure. Yeah. I mean, what's a stitch? <laughs> a stitch in time. Yeah, but for little ones, I like to also put out like a cookie sheet. Yeah. And, and the mess goes in there. It's easy to pick mm. up, move it over the, the, the kitchen, and then just, you know, rinse Throw it, it off. Throw it at each yeah. other. Well, rinse it off. It's easier to contain the mess. I, I used to teach kindergarten, and I had a parent once, uh, one time, the child couldn't even hold a pencil. She'd never had the dexterity. Um, and, and when it was time to Play-Doh, um, he sa- I said, did you do a Play-Doh at home? Oh, no, we don't do Play-Doh. That's too messy. And so the child really had no – Never had ne- used their hands. Inst- never used their hands. Um, that, what a sad thing. That child's so behind missing. and missing out. So keep it contained. If that's if that's a, a messy thing for you, you can easily transport that cookie sheet or whatever yeah. to this kitchen sink and then rinse it off. And then change the venue. Sometimes do it in the bathtub. Give them some stuff yeah. to you know squirt in the bathtub and make that all We had fun. a lady make a brisket <laughs> in the bathtub the other day and burn her house down. Oh, uh, yeah. Be or careful like, with that. Or like Ben, our old guy yeah. here, he made – Ice cream, ice cream, in the ice cream bathtub. bathtub. Do you remember? Those yes. Were the days. Yeah. Or the back fence. You, you clip paper on the back fence, big poster paper, and let them, you know, paint on that. Um, use that as their easel. Mm. Um, there's so many different ways that you can change the venue. In the end, um, as we wrap it up, what's what would you say is the one thing to remember about art and their children? Well, uh, parents, it's never too late, and it's never too young. Um, and I'd say start as young as you can and keep it going. And even though they might protest. Take them there. You know, make it a tradition. We we buy season tickets to the theater, yeah. and that's part of their birthday presents. We make it a tradition. We go to the symphonies. The summer the summer free concerts in the park. I love those. Even though they yeah. may not go, bring snacks, you know. Yeah. Ma- Hang out. Entice make it a them. party. Make bring it a party. your kids back home to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, if, you don't, if you don't expose them young, it's going to be like giving lobster, you mm-hmm. know, and shrimp to a 16-year-old who's never seen 
between the sea. Like, you got to start this? young, get yeah. their palate starting to taste it young, and That's get good. exposed to it. Julie K. Nelson's her name. A spoonful of parenting is her game, as well as art this week with your children. Great discussion. Well, I don't know about you, but I learned a lot today. Who knew your secondary heart was in your legs and high heels could help you metabolize? Okay, so in short, our guests are suggesting we invest in compression socks to keep our blood from pooling and pipe cleaners to help keep our kids happy. Well, thanks for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with more of Matt Townsend's Words of Wisdom. 